Now, speaking of the role of a product leader, developing people is arguably one of the most important part of the job, and this show will focus on that. Now, in this episode, we will learn why product managers need coaching to begin with and how is it different from other professions. We also talk about how to coach product managers effectively, and we talk about some anti-patterns. We'll also cover uh, how to track progress and to make sure actually if it's working in a coaching relationship. Now, my guest today is Scott Affleck. Scott is currently the VP of product at ratehub.ca, where he leads product design and analytics. Now, prior to Scott's joining uh, ratehub.ca three years ago, none of these functions existed. So much of his past three years involved building the team and establishing processes to support a business that has grown 3x in that time. Scott is an avid lover of high growth B2C and marketplace startups and has spent over a decade working in product in fintech, travel, and social media. Prior to his career in product, Scott spent six years working in corporate strategy at Bain & Company and Bell Canada. So get ready, guys, for a very fun talk on how to coach PMs with Scott Affleck. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Slayman, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Scott, welcome to PM Hub. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me, Cyrus. How are you doing today? Doing great, doing great. Uh, I'm really excited to have this uh, conversation with you, Scott, on, on how to coach PMs, because I know you have a lot of golden nuggets to share with us. But before we dive in, I'd love to, you know, we all have different journeys in the product. Um, I'm curious to know how, how was your journey to product? Yeah, sure. Um, so I kind of stumbled into the whole product world. Um, I spent a long time working in corporate strategy and, and kind of got tired of just telling companies how to, or defining ideas for companies to make more money and, and figure things out. I actually wanted to make shit happen. And um, so I decided to start taking a look around. Um, when I was looking, it was about 2009, and I was in Toronto, and product management was kind of not as well known here as as it was in, in the Bay Area or lots of places in the U.S. Um, so I hadn't really heard of it in its current incarnation. Um, I had heard the term product manager when I worked at Bell, but really those roles were more like product marketing as opposed to product management as I know it today. And so um, I started looking and, and heard this term and one of my mentors from Bain and Bell connected me to a former consulting friend of his uh, who, took, who was setting up a product function at Awanda. So I chose to explore it and luckily enough, she took a chance on a guy with no experience and basically I fell in love kind of immediately. Um, if I go back a step further throughout my life, I've always been flipping back and forth between the tech and business world. And so if you think about product, it's an amazing cross section of the two, a great, great blend of the two disciplines. Um, so in my career, I started by studying computer engineering, knew I didn't want to be a developer. So I landed in strategy. Um, but while I was at Bain in strategy, I missed the tech world. So I took the transfer to the Bay area in order to get some strategy work in a technology business or multiple businesses. So then when I moved back to Toronto, I went back to Bell to try and leverage a strategy role into an operating role at a company that is in a more technical discipline. 
Um, so there was kind of always this ebb and flow between do I want to be in technology uh, in like a operational role or a strategic role? Uh, and, and then I think after I'd been through that, the, the skills that I had learned on the consulting side of my career were actually more transferable than you might think. So some of the things you need as a product manager are strong relationship building, the ability to deconstruct and build up hypotheses, uh, come to kind of conclusions with analytical and data-driven solutions, uh, estimate value and prioritize things. And then of course, you have to kind of have a little bit of vision in both worlds in order to be successful in the careers. And so basically I took the plunge when my friend offered me the job and never looked back. Uh, that said, you know, the world has evolved a lot since 2009. And my understanding has evolved a lot of the role of PM. Um, so thinking about it, you know, some of the things I have learned along the ways, uh, my first spec was about 35 pages long before I went to dev wow. as opposed to an, an agile kind of uh, flow. I'd never run or heard of A-B testing or even user experience, really. Um, our web analytics package broke down at one point, and we had no web data for three months, so we were making decisions in the blind, uh, <laughs> which is very hard in a consumer business. And so obviously my, my view on uh, what product management means has changed a lot in the last 12 or 13 years. Wow. Uh, such a journey you've been all over the place from you know software engineering to consulting and then finding your way into product uh, which which actually pretty much explains it you know all you touch on different areas you know technical business strategy and then uh, you come come in the middle and then you do kind of like dabble into all of them right so that's that's very cool uh now you're at vfa uh, product at rate hub uh, i'm curious to know if you could share a bit more about your role there and then how you went about building the product practice there. Yeah, sure. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, RateHub's a financial product comparison site. And so what we do is we help Canadians find the best products in mortgages, credit cards, bank accounts, insurance products, et cetera, for their kind of personal finance situation. Um, the team that I lead there is nine people in product design and analytics. Um, and I'm a part of our leadership team. Um, so. Stepping back to your question about building the practice, I thought I'd give you a little context on where we were when I started at RateHub and where we are today. And, and things look quite significantly different. So stepping back to uh, three and a half years ago, we had less than half the people we do today. We had a PM who had done a couple of years of marketing and then was put into a PM role, did not have any real training. Uh, we had six or seven developers operating in a single scrum team. Jira was installed, but like we we had just started doing sprints um, and sprint planning was actually done at the time with the PM, the CEO, the CMO wow. and the director of finance every two weeks. So it was quite <laughs> a an unusual structure. Um, and a lot of the, the decisions were made based on sort of instinctive decision making. Um, we did some A-B testing, but really like the analytics were quite limited. We had uh, about 20 free goal slots in GA and we didn't even use all of those. So you know, fairly kind of rudimentary in terms of the product capacity there and analytics capacity. So flash forward to today, you know, three and a half years later, we're over 125 employees with roughly uh, 25 devs and about five scrum teams, um, operating fully agile with each team governing itself. Um, we use user research and testing to validate concepts. We A-B test at scale. 
uh, analytics fuels our decisions. So we now track every click on our site. It's connected into a lot of activity because we do a lot of affiliate marketing, connecting all of our marketing and partner activities. Uh, and basically we use that information to both make better business decisions, but then also uh, we're starting to use it for more CRM and personalization throughout our journeys. Uh, and, and that's a pretty rapid change on a, a variety of fronts in about three years. So it's, so how do we get there? I mean, really it came down to a lot of hard work, uh, a lot of uh, support from an incredibly supportive CEO and, and, a, and a team that generally was quite open to discussion and investment in the team and capabilities. So um, you need a lot of support in your network to be able to make this kind of a transformation. But then if I talk more tactically about what happened, so really my first year was focused on a few things. So we needed to make sure that we we're operating at least moderately efficiently. So we kind of did what I would call like an MVP version of, of establishing the processes needed to deliver good product work. Uh, we hired and onboarded a, a, quite an amazing team. I've got a group of people around me that is constantly challenging me and, and just doing a great job. And uh, I could not have done it without building a great team around me. So that team, as I said, grew from basically one or two people to the nine is today. Um, both from the PM side, but then also on this analytical function that needs to help support the, the business decisions. Uh, we, we also then started installing kind of analytics tracking tools because if you don't have any history with analytics, it's almost pointless on its own. And so mm -hmm. the first thing to do was just make sure we're actually gathering data and information. And then we got into um, kind of the MVP version of research and uh, user testing and so on because it's, it's completely inefficient to do it all at the dev level and A-B testings if you don't have some level of insightfulness and prototyping coming from your qualitative channels. So that was kind of like the first year was just establishing the baseline. And then the second year was much more about expanding on all the above. So evolving our processes to go um, dealing with more cross-functional teams and larger teams and more teams investing in warehousing to make data more accessible and connected and expanding the user research to kind of cover the full stack of, of design. So everything from UI through to research and, um, you know, getting the tools and team capabilities together for that front. And so since then we've shifted to a much more continuous delivery and continuous improvement on all this stuff. Um, so it's kind of been constant iterations, just like you would. You start with in a product career, the the organization was structured in a very MVP way, and then we iterated from there. Beautiful. It's obviously from what you told us, it's like day and night difference uh, from from the day mm -hmm. you started versus today, which is which is fascinating. Uh, now, before we dive right into the topic uh, on coaching PMs, I think it's important to talk about. First, actually, how you go about hiring PMs, I think, because that, that would speak a lot about also uh, the aspects, the kind of like your angle, that how you look at it. So I'm curious to know what's your approach for hiring product managers? And like to me, it's also I'm curious to know, is being coachable a big factor? Yeah, so um, I think I was saying this to you before, I, I won't give too many secrets away because we, we have a job posting that we're about to put oh. up for a PM role shortly. So if anyone's oh. listening, feel free to uh, <laughs> apply. But 
But um, I'm taking aside, notes. You know, there's <laughs> uh, joke, all jokes aside, there's there's kind of like a bunch of things that I consider in the hire, and and so if I kind of take the top level look at at this, it's what are the needs of the product team, the Scrum team um, that the PM will lead, and then the other aspect is how do I kind of perceive the needs of the business to evolve over the next couple of years because the the hiring side of things you never want to hire someone only for you know a quarter or two quarters and when you live in an agile world you think about it like typically on shorter periods of time but that just does not work in the hiring environment where you you need to make sure you give stability in the jobs and so on and so from the aspects of the product team and the scrum team what are the skills that were lacking most in the current team and what are the current team members looking to learn? So, you know, um, in the past, I've, I've noticed that there were gaps on sort of maybe the process side of things. And so the skill set I was looking for had a little bit more experience on the process side of things so that they could both help me instill that in the business as we're growing and then also teach the other team members some of the ins and outs or things that they've experienced in the past. Um, Another question I look at is what kind of this, what's the kind of skill set we need for the role? So is this more of a UX heavy role? Does somebody need more technical chops? Are we trying to figure out process communication analytics or project management? And, and those things kind of, there's kind of a list of skills that you need in product managers, but I kind of look for the ones that are most relevant to the needs of the teams at that point in time. And then similarly, you know, what is, what are the, scrum teams in need of. So I think we've all been on scrum teams where you have a technical lead who is, you know, an amazing communicator or just really, really strong architect and you have to pull things out of them. And you kind of have to think how you're going to pair the PM with the technical lead as well. Um, and then on the business side, what could be kind of future opportunities for this person? So are there future teams that we're going to expand into? Are there future areas that they can grow into? And, you know, do we need more reporting layers at some point? Could that just be something where they manage people in a few years? And so if you take those things together, you kind of go beyond just that job description that you put on the site into more of what you actually need in the role and, and the seat in the business. So that's kind of how I think about defining what I need in a hire. Um, then on the interview side itself, so... I take a pretty consistent approach, although I adapt quite regularly in interviews. Um, so I've got like a list of skills that I'm trying to figure out how well-rounded an applicant is on um, all fronts. So for instance, their approach, their structure and approach to problem solving, their creativity and communication, uh, relationship building, um, their abilities to be analytical. And, and by that, I mean um, both using quant and qualitative to solve problems because you need both. And then to your point, coachability and, and openness to and solicitor of feedback. Um, it's, it's very hard to be a PM and not be open to feedback. I think it's a critical skill in our skill set. Um, but I'll come back to that. I think so that there's the tangible side of what skills do you need? And then there's the cultural side, which is super important to me. And one of the things that drew me into Rate Hub is we're, we're quite focus on establishing a very strong culture in the business. Um, and our cultural values very much align personally to my code and my belief of what makes good PMs. So those are impact orientation, 
um, being willing to help, uh, doing the right thing, having a growth mindset, and and probably most importantly to me, having a little bit of fun as you do this. So if I'm in an interview, I will literally write these down on someone's CV. And then as I go through the interview process, tick off which elements I've seen them display as they're going through the interview. So the last kind of thing I think about is, is what is this person's style? So I'm a, you'll hear throughout our conversation, like I'm a big believer in the importance of styles because I think it really helps you understand how well people are going to op operate with other stakeholders and, and communicate and so on. And so in most interviews, I will take a, my best guess on applicants, uh, Myers-Briggs or DISC profiles, both of which are sort of style frameworks and see how, think about how well they'll fit with the rest of the team. And then, you know, quite often, again, I'll write them down on the uh, CV and, and my guess on the CV and hopefully uh, check in with them later after they get hired. We actually ask people to take DISC assessments in the interviewing process. And I'm usually mostly right, and I get, get them wrong a little bit, but um, it's kind of a it's a good skill to look out for people's styles. It just really helps. So, to your last question, I mean, I think for me, lack of coachability as a PM is a is a deal breaker for me. Um, it goes against the values that I mentioned above. Goes against our company values, and I, I just kind of think. We always need to be open and learning as PMs because it's the only way you evolve your your products in a in a positive way. So um, that extends both to being empathetic to our consumers, but also to your personal growth. No, I love that. I mean, it's really awesome the way you take the shorter term and also the longer term outlook in the position and uh, from there you figure out the needs and you go about it that's 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 amazing now you know putting my pm hats on and starting with why uh i'm gonna ask you like why do even pms need coaching yeah i love the the simon sinek framework is something that's always in my head and i'm i'm always thinking context first so probably part of the reason i uh, framed up those earlier dialogues uh, but it is Super important to start with why. Um, why do PMs need coaching? You know, I think frankly, it's not just PMs that need coaching. We all need to be. We'll all do a lot better as a society if we uh, accept coaching um, and need it. Um, I don't think we, but specifically to like sort of PM, like we don't necessarily have all the right mechanisms in place to really learn all the skills to make PM successful. So it's, so I should say, an, even a more general mindset, people, we don't have the right mechanisms in place to teach people um, all the skills to make people successful. So schools in place, it helps us with theory. Uh, we learn about the application of that theory through job situations. Um, you know, we learn about communication and relationships. We learn about uh, survival skills with those tough situations we face in life. And all those situations, the learning is always accelerated if we have the right feedback loops in place to help us identify problems that we may or may not notice um, and help us come to solutions that we may not think of um, without necessarily failing 15 times. You know, you, you can get to an answer a lot faster. And so I think that's pretty critical in a PM career, but I think even more so because we don't have those schools I talked about in, in most cases to teach us the PM career um, you know, there's obviously a few great training courses out there and so on, but it's not a standard. And the game is constantly changing. You have 
your projects change, your role changes with them. Frameworks, tools, and approach change all the time. So, you know, like I said, we didn't even have A-B testing in UX when I first started in products. So like you have to adapt to capabilities changes and best practice changes. And then I think first and foremost, technology adapts like literally annually at times now. And the layers of abstraction since I first started in product or in computer engineering are insane. So um, you kind of have to be able to adapt very quickly. So like failing is valuable, right? I think it's super important for us to fail but failing repeatedly in a business is actually quite costly. And so you kind of have to find ways to shorten those loops. Um, so in my opinion, in lots of jobs, you can go very deep in skill on a specific subject, but in product, you actually have to have good level of depth across of a lot of areas. And so you have to learn so many things to be successful that I think it's quite hard to be an expert in anything and, and hence more failure. So for all those reasons, I think you need to be open to coaching and, and um, try and adapt much quicker and evolve quicker in your career. Right on. Now, what would you say is a percentage of, of uh, the time that the product leader should spend ideally on, on coaching their product managers? Yeah, it's, this is a this is a, always one of those questions where it's, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule, but um, it very much depends on the situation you're in. But I would say generally, for each PM that's on my team, I'll spend somewhere between five and 15% of my time just purely on coaching. And that's obviously varied through the last few years because there were times where I was operating as a PM um, and didn't have as much capacity. But, um, you know, generally that's sort of the target that I'm aiming for. And so the variance there will depend a lot on, you know, how new are they to the company or to the, the scrum team or role, uh, what stage of the product they're in our project they're in and have they seen and done this before because you know when they're in the mode of spiking kind of a new new skill set you need to be a little bit more hands-on and if they need specific coaching or practice on a specific skill so you know if they're just trying to figure out how to effectively communicate a, a plan or uh, define a roadmap or you know run you know ceremonies or something like that Sometimes you need to dive in a little bit more and just listen in and, and help give advice on how they could have done things a little differently. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that totally makes sense. Now, you know, you, you mentioned how coaching is actually overall is important as a, in a society, and I agree with you on that. But I'm curious, since you have this consulting background that you mentioned, uh, I'm curious to know how does coaching a PM uh, differs from coaching, you know, other roles uh, from your past experiences? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, I think if you kind of take the high-level perspective, it's honestly very similar in terms of some of the core tenets and skills people need. Um, I kind of think most people need to be very strong in communication and at least have some level of skill at project management and so on in all jobs. Um, and especially like consulting and PM, they're, they're quite similar on those fronts. They're pretty heavily weighted to both of those categories. Um, Pro, and I guess even compared to consulting, there is some similarities, you know, in both cases, you need to be able to lead with influence. Um, but that's something that kind of sets product management coaching and to a certain extent, consulting coaching uh, coaching in a different mindset than other roles. So 
you know, I've, I've had other non kind of indirect leadership roles that were reported to me in the past. And um, I think when you're dealing with PMs, figuring out how to helping PMs learn how to lead with influence as opposed to in a reporting relationship is one of those areas where you need to spend a little bit more time. So, you know, in order to build productive solutions, you know, PM needs, uh, PMs need a uh, collaboration with stakeholders um, that often have conflicting priorities and you don't really have a lot of uh, options to incent compromise for people. So you can't use the stick, you know, you can't push people into it. it. You don't really have something to offer in a lot of cases as an incentive. So PMs basically have to find ways to push for action without being able to say, you know, just do it. And the stakeholder categories are quite wide, right? So a designer's buttons are that you're pushing on are quite different in a lot of cases than a developers or a analyst or a business stakeholder in most cases. So adapting to styles and, and dealing with reporting indirect reporting relationship is one area that I've had to invest a lot of time with coaching on roles. Um, but beyond that, I think, as I said before, most of the difference is being able to coach on a breadth of skill sets as opposed to, you know, having extensive depth in, you know, paid marketing, for instance, it's, it's quite different. You need to be decent in a lot of categories. Right on. Now, my next question, actually, Scott, uh, is kind of a follow-up on the previous one, and you touched upon a few points, but what would you say is the least understood about, uh, you know, coaching product managers, in your opinion? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of things that are kind of probably not that well understood, and I mean, we, as I said, we don't have schooling and, and so on for this, so maybe that's an indication that there's not a lot of understanding of it, but... I think it of of it in terms of um, arming, you know, there's some people think of arming people with, uh, sorry, rather I should say, people think of coaching very much around arming people with specific tools, right? So mm -hmm. learning the business, establishing soft skills. So, you know, as in a PM world, we talk about learning A/B testing and agile and project management skills and the business side, it's like learn the tech stack or learn the industry and, and the soft skills are like be an effective presentation and, and communicator. And I think if you were to read 15 job descriptions right now, including probably the one we posted, uh, it's, it's a very similar sort of set of tools that people talk about on the coaching side. But what's not in there and what's super valuable is, is helping PMs understand how to work or understand what their stakeholders need and want and what motivates them and how, what they need to do to make a decision. So I think in general, PMs are quite naturally empathetic, um, but we often do side more on the side of over empathizing with people. And so the loudest voice in the room gets heard a lot of, of times. And so one of the things that I think is super important when you're coaching PMs is helping them understand the importance of spending time to get to know everyone in the room. So what is their style? Like, how do they communicate? How do they think about things? How do they break down problems? What are they measured on? What are they incented by? And kind of what are they worried about? And so you can almost think of it like 
if you're familiar with the UX world, job to be done framework, like it, it's kind of like that, right? What is the job that your stakeholder is trying to achieve? Um, so the more you can understand the problems they're facing and what they're trying to solve for in that time, it makes it a lot easier for you to advocate for all sides in the conversations, even when those stakeholders are not present. Build trust with them because they, they, everyone involved, to be honest, because even if you say like, oh, I think stakeholder X would prefer this. And then next time you say to that person, well, I think you would prefer this. And you can kind of use that as a compromise and incentive, as I said before. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more you know those stakeholders, you can kind of learn how to influence decisions from all sides and uh, know when you need to kind of give the win to a stakeholder in certain cases, because there there are times where it just makes sense to, if there's a kind of a low risk, low hanging fruit kind of thing, solve it for that person and get it out of the way so it's not in your backlog and, and it takes the pressure off and you're lousy to focus on higher priority things. So. It's kind of a good way to counterbalance everything if you know what people are, need in their careers or in their lives and in their jobs. Like what you hear so far? Make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself, and I'm thankful for your support. Now let's head back to the show. Right on. Yeah, no, I love that. You know how, and I, I noticed that you put a lot of focus, uh, rightfully, like for for stakeholder management and and, and the soft skills and managing up, uh, which is not, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I found it to be a lot of, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, product uh, people out there. And I think about like, you know, what tools are we going to use? What framework we're going to use? Right. Right. Exactly. Whereas, yeah, the more the more important thing is about how you manage these relationships with other stakeholders. That's awesome. So let's, right, yeah, uh huh. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say I think it's it's it is more important. Those soft skills help you go a long way, as I say. Um, there's that saying, "Culture eats strategy," but it also eats tools, right? Like you mm-hmm. you need to to understand the culture around you and work with that culture to drive to success. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, what is your overall approach to coaching uh, product managers, Scott? And like, do, do you have do you use a framework per se uh, that uh, you know you can share with us? Yeah, so I I I, I mean I kind of dabble back and forth in terms of uh, frameworks. So I, I kind of use a few. I don't have a specific approach, but there's a few things that I do use for, as tools. Now that I talk about tools, um, to help me kind of figure out where people are in their career and where they need some uh, support. So I mentioned DISC and Myers-Briggs before. So super helpful to figure out both where people are strong naturally in terms of their styles on things, but then also to help them understand how their styles might conflict with stakeholders. So, you know, if you're somebody who um, is very forceful and and aggressive on things dealing with somebody who's you know doesn't take aggression or conflict well would rather have some time to think things through you know you need to adapt the way you communicate with them a little bit um so that's that's a super helpful tool on the style side there's also another tool that's that's called the um confidence and competence matrix and really that's that's about is trying to figure out where someone is in their career 
So do they need more teaching, encouragement, coaching, or challenging? And so the idea is it's like a two by two matrix. And the idea is you kind of start low confidence and low competence in a lot of subjects and people through their career and, and in skills tend to grow from, they gain confidence before they get competence. Um, and then they add the competence factor, but they've been humbled by the fact that they didn't necessarily get it when they were overconfident. Mm -hmm. And then they progress into high level of confidence and you really just need to challenge them and, and push them to do it. And so I, I mentioned before, there's times where you need to spend a little bit more or less time coaching on specific skills. The confidence competence matrix is a great way to think about like, you know, if someone is working on presentation skills, for instance, where are they on this curve? Uh, what aspect do they need to work on? Do I need to invest my time in teaching them or challenging them to figure it out on their own? Mm -hmm. um, the third thing is the, a career progression matrix. And so frankly, there's tons of these out there in the world. Uh, but thinking about career progression, it's often useful to think about what are the skills PMs need and where should they be at their kind of level of tenure in order to show the right progression. And so super helpful tool in terms of figuring out where people are overall in their career and, and where there's gaps or things that they need to fill out. So when you talk about approach, generally my approach is I, I'm a very consistent feedback person. I try and give it all the time rather than waiting just for reviews, but you have to counterbalance that with giving too much feedback in too many categories means people don't have time to work on them. So you kind of have to find the right balance on those things. Um, the other thing is, when PMs are in a stage where they're they're tackling a problem they haven't, they have a, where they have a lot of unknowns. As I mentioned before, if they're in spike mode on part of their career, like they don't understand the scope or they're learning a new skill, you have to check in more regularly than you do when you're in that challenging mode as opposed to the teaching mode. Um, and then I, I use that as I said before, I use the career progression matrix to look for opportunities for growth for the PM. If they haven't done a lot of, let's just, I'm just gonna use the term A-B testing, uh, maybe I have to give them a, a role where they can do more of that just to get smart on how to, to run experiments effectively and, and things like that. So, um, and then I think sporadically throughout, it's great to audit meetings and presentations and so on, just to kind of give feedback on how can you communicate and work better with the team. Very cool. I, I hear a lot of kind of like, gap analysis, uh, Scott, let's say starting on that Myers-Briggs or disc and like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, then the styles of, you know, personality styles and then the confidence and confidence and also on the kind of career progression mode as well, which is, which is really interesting on the way you see like where, you know, they could be or they should be and then where they are and then how they can go about uh, bridging that gap basically, right? Right. Very cool. So now, do you do you coach all, all PMs? You know, no matter if it's an APM or like a senior PM, the same way. I mean, I think I take the same approach to it. Um, as I said before, there, you have to adapt a little bit more based on a lot of the things I've mentioned earlier around how familiar are they with the problem and and uh, what is their style? Are they were operating against their particular style? Um, and the level of confidence and, and confidence they're displaying. But in general, I kind of use the same way of 
approaching the problem. The difference tends to be more that if people are more in that teaching phase, um, you kind of have to be more engaged with them and spend a little bit more time and have more regular check-ins and, and start by giving them smaller pieces of work and then kind of expand outward from there. And so it's great to look for opportunities where you can give somebody a fairly easy win um, it, just to help them build that confidence up and then and establish some of the skill sets. So uh, sometimes I'll look for that in terms of smaller project work. And sometimes I'll look for that, like, I know that this PM has had this a similar kind of experience in a past role, even if it wasn't in product. And so hopefully they, they can use that skill set they've already developed a bit and, and leverage that into quicker success. Right on. Now talking about like, you know, keeping track of like, you know, how the work uh, has been, you know, going on and the progress uh, of the, you know, coaching uh, journey as a PM goes through it. How do you, how do you keep track of it? How, and how do you know it's basically it's working? Yeah. So on the tracking side of things, you know, I mentioned before I use a career development framework, which I refer to quite often to look at how broad or all the broad set of skills that I think PMs need and where they are versus years of experience. So that gives me a pretty good idea of gaps and breadths, as we talked about before. Um, and then, you know, a few times a year we're checking in on on growth opportunities and and goals for professional developments. And then regularly, so setting goals on those semi-annual or more conversations and then um, touching base in one-on-ones quite regularly in terms of uh, the goals that we've set, those are all great tools for tracking how people are doing against that, mm -hmm. those original goals. Uh, and then sometimes those goals will become part of our, like for lack of a better term, OKRs that we check on in on weekly. And so... It's quite often that I'll give someone a, a professional development OKR um, where they have to kind of, you know, establish more skills in a certain area. And then that gives us the opportunity to check in every week. Um, so that that's one way to track. Uh, in terms of like your question about how do you know if it's working? I mean, I think it's the intuitive answer is that like at least quarterly you can check in with stakeholders and people around the business and um, and see how things are going. And so soliciting feedback from around the business is obviously a great way to see how things are being perceived in the business. Um, and in our one-on-ones, like you can ask the PM about it too, but I generally think how you know it's working is like things are just generally moving faster and and quicker and there's just, you hear less noise in, in all different channels, right? And so, mm. um, that comes both from those stakeholders as you go, but then also like in your one-on-ones, you you just, people get more excited about their successes and um, they just show confidence and they just take things a lot more clearly. So it generally helps you uh, know that things are working when it just becomes obvious through the way people are behaving. Yep, yep, it does make sense. Now, uh, Scott, you, you've, uh, you've coached, uh, quite a number of PMs. I'm curious to know what are some uh, anti-patterns, if you will, of coaching that you can share with us? Yeah, fun topic, um, <laughs> anti-patterns. So, you know, all the things that we're supposed to be, uh, we tell people to do and then just uh, take back from them, right? The first thing <laughs> is, 
telling a team member to solve a problem and then, you know, not giving them the, uh, the time or especially something that's really unknown to them and not giving them the time and the capabilities and, and resources to actually solve it or even the context. So it's, it's very, very hard to put someone in a position that they don't understand and ask them to do it all on their own and then watch them flounder. So that's just counter to coaching. Um, I think, you know, similarly, if you're identifying growth areas and, and repeatedly giving feedback, um, but you're not like that sort of negative or areas that people need to work on, but then you're not actually giving them feedback or suggestions on how to improve or even further, you're not giving them positive reinforcement when they are improving. Like mm-hmm. it's all great to have someone to change, but if you're not helping them change and you're not supporting their change, you're not doing your job uh, as a coach. And then I think, you know, the other one that I see happen all the time, and I've probably been done this myself in the past at times, but giving a team member an opportunity that aligns with their goals, and then you do the work yourself, right? It's giving something to someone to learn, and then they take it away is just, sometimes you got to throw the kids into the pool and watch them, you know, try and learn how to swim and just be there to make sure they don't drown. And that that's way more important than making sure that the pool has water in it, right? Like it's just, you, you got to give them the support. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, the last one you mentioned, uh, I was reading this blog the other day, they called this the manager's death spiral and kind of right. like that's, that's what happens where, you know, uh, you want to you want to give the opportunity, but then you just end up doing it yourself. The first one really resonated with me. Uh, oh, where, yeah. You know, I was I was given a problem. I was like, okay, that's that's great, but then I just didn't have enough context, and I just like, you know mm-hmm. I was kind of headless. I didn't know where I'm going, right? So I totally resonate with that one. Yeah, and I think that's actually quite important. It's an important skill. You you mentioned earlier the start with why. Super critical as a PM to develop that skill to know to start with the why because you know it's not just in reporting relationships but think about the relationships with your dev team and your designers and all these other stakeholders if you're traveling across meetings with different people and you haven't established the right context they don't know how to solve the problem either and they're probably going to get confused so uh it's super important as a pm yeah that's all evangelism they call right they have to make sure that you have right. to, that's the one thing that it's you shouldn't be shy about over communicating is it 100 you can't over uh, state a prayer i think is the the line right that's right yeah so uh now scott what what makes from your experience what makes a coaching experience great so yeah coaching i mean i generally love coaching so it's it's some but there are certain situations that just make it better than others. And so there's been several instances in the past that are quite similar in my mind um, where I've kind of taken chances and given team members opportunities in completely unfamiliar situations. So, you know, new roles or skills that are outside of their quote unquote job description, right? Um, And generally this happens when people have shown some aptitude indirectly that they have a skill set and an interest in something that they may not be doing today. Um, and they have this ability to learn quite quickly. And sometimes it's also because they've, they've kind of reached a pinnacle in their current role where they, they need some new challenges, right? And so, so these conversations come up um, here and there and, and when you're coaching people. And um, 
generally in, in this case, I, this, this coaching people in these situations requires a much higher level of support in a bunch of ways. So um, you need to teach them the skills. You need to provide the confidence through encouragement. And then I think a super important point is um, you have to be vulnerable as a coach and talk about times where you've, you know, also felt the same pains and been in situations where you didn't know exactly what to do. And there's this concept of imposter syndrome that completely resonates with me because, you know, throughout my career, there's been lots of times where I didn't know exactly if I was capable of that current job or, or the task that was in front of me. And super helpful when I've had mentors in the past open up and go like, hey, this is hard. We'll be here to support you. Um, here's, let me help you try and solve this problem. I know you don't know how to do it. I didn't know how to do it before. All these things are quite encouraging. And so when you're in these circumstances, this is like the truest form of coaching where you have to flex all of your muscles to help someone succeed. It's not just teaching or encouraging or any of that stuff. It's you, you kind of have to stretch into a bunch of different areas. And I think the most satisfying part of it is that moment when the person just realizes they can do something that they thought was impossible and they just start doing it themselves with a great big smile on their face. Yeah, I love that. When you take that leap of faith in someone and when that happens, right. that's that's awesome. Uh, and I love the point you mentioned and the empathy and like, you know, you kind of resonate with them and show vulnerability from your end. Um, and I think uh, also Marty Kagan talks about the imposter. I was reading one of his blogs. He's saying mm -hmm. that a lot of people think about imposter syndrome. Oh, you have to just, you know, avoid it. And like, you know, just don't think about it. And he was like, no, you shouldn't avoid it. You should just face it, be aware of it yeah. and just face it. And then go, you know, that's that's what it means. Like, you know, it's, it's okay to have imposter syndrome, right? It's just that how you take it, it's really yeah. important, right? So uh, it's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. That. Like it. Yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's, you know, I, I, I think it's the real sign of growth. Um, if you're in these situations, um, it's a true sign of being able to develop into a leader. And it's a true sign of really just capacity in all the different angles. Like, um, sometimes you just have to take those leaps and, and stumble and, and learn from them and, and really just makes you feel more comfortable all around if you can accomplish those things, I think. So being an imposter should be embraced. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Now, I mean, like everything, let's look at the flip side, Scott. Like what, what, would, what sure. would cause a coaching relationship to go south? Yeah, so I mean, I think unfortunately this happens, we all have to go through this as coaches, um, at least, you know, several times in their career. And so I think even the best coaches can, can't avoid all situations where things can break down. Um, I think it's important to realize that like coaching failures can happen, not like can be your fault as the coach and can also be uh, the team member itself or themselves not being coachable or, or open to the feedback and stuff. So I think an important part of coaching is recognizing that there's two parts to every story on this stuff. Um, so for the first part is like, you know, how do I double check to make sure that I have done the right thing as a coach? So a um, bunch of ways that I think you can ensure that it's not your coaching. So we talked a little bit before about repetition. And I think in almost every situation, especially when something is new, you have to get people to remind people to eat their broccoli seven times before they'll actually enjoy it. Right. And, right. and, and do it. So repetition 
repetition is important. Um, but repetition on its own may not be the problem. It could be like I've, you've delivered the message in the wrong way. And so you have to come sometimes try different approaches to deliver the message. So sometimes it's like start with some feedback and then think about like actually kind of let's just take a presentation example. Do I frame out a presentation for somebody so they kind of know where I'm going and put some very high level points on the page and give some direction that way? Um, there might be three or four different ways to teach somebody to get to that answer. Um, using explicit examples is super important. It's, it's not that helpful if you say like, you're not communicating well. Uh, what does that mean? You know, I did, there's communication is such a broad definition to a lot of people that they may be misinterpreting entirely um, what you're saying. And they could be working on their, their verbal presentation when actually it's just you want them to communicate status updates more often. So you have mm -hmm. to be very explicit on, on what the coaching, what, what the coaching is. Um, and then if you're all else fails, like I think it's always good to think about who are the peers around you, both in the business or outside the business that you can go to and, and they can coach you on your coaching, right? So try to deliver that message to a friendly audience um, and see if you're saying something that's just not quite making sense to them too. Because if they don't get it, chances are the other person's not, the person you're coaching may not get it. Um, and, and so like, and styles can play into this stuff too. And so it's important to kind of trial all these things out. But if you've, mm -hmm. if you've done all of that, if you've done all that stuff, you can kind of assume that it's not really the coaching aspect of things. It may be more about the team member. And that's where you start getting into like, how do I assess this person's coachability basically, um, as you said before. So like there's an analogous kind of framework that we use when we think about like putting people into new roles and it's called um, GWC, which stands for get it, wanted and capacity. Mm -hmm. And so the get it is, do they understand what is needed to be successful in the role? The wanted is, are they motivated to succeed in the role? And the capacity side is, do they have the talent, knowledge, time, and resources to be successful in that role? And so if you say no to any of those points, it's not likely that they're going to be successful in the role they're in, right? Um, mm -hmm. Similarly, in coaching situations, when coaching is failing, they you could probably say no to one of those same things, right? So they they may not be supported enough they may not have enough time to practice this skill or they so they don't have capacity or they just like have no interest in this in learning this skill and, and they don't want it and so if it's either that they um if it's a capacity issue in a lot of cases you can actually give them more resource or or free up resource or find ways to build capacity and for them to invest more in the skill if they're, if they want it and they understand what is needed. But if it's in the other two categories, sometimes it's, it's often very hard to get somebody to be motivated, to want to succeed in a role or to fully get it if you've pushed very hard on the coaching aspect of things. And so at some point you, you, I, I think generally that's a point to consider is this person in the right role and or business to, to, succeed and um, on that last one it's super important to think about 
it doesn't necessarily mean that they're in their bad role, but it could be the combination of what the business needs are in that role that doesn't work. And I've seen lots of people that are highly successful in, for instance, um, big company environments, but not as successful in startup environments where there's less support around in, in a lot of fronts. And so um, I don't think it does necessarily means it's the end of the world for that person. It may feel like that for a little bit, but sometimes it's actually better for everyone if, if they're in a role where they'll get the right support that they need and, and the right motivation that they need to succeed in their role. So um, then it comes down to coaching, like, are you going to get there or are you not going to get there? Right on. Now, Scott, this whole talk, I would call this like a playbook on, on how to actually okay. coach people. You shared a lot of uh, golden nuggets, like I promised in the beginning. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for that. Uh, now, are there any no tools or resources that you know we recommend our listeners if you want to further check out on this topic? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm not a massive like book learner, although I've obviously referred to a bunch of frameworks. So um, I do, I think a lot of it comes from practice, but I think some of the tools and resources that I've mentioned in this conversation, so learn a style framework. So learn Myers-Briggs or DISC or True Colors or so on. And and that actually is the kind of thing that you have to get the training, but then you have to put it in practice for quite a long time to actually make it effective. Um, but there's some really great summary summaries out there in the world around styles, what, how people behave and how they interact with each other with like, for instance, disc styles is, it's super helpful to figure out like, um, where, what may, may be causing conflict. And a large number of times when I see conflicts between employees, it's, it's often very diagnosable with, you know, using disc on both sides and seeing how they're meshing and not meshing well. So mm -hmm. style frameworks is super helpful. Uh, the career progression matrices, there's there's quite a few out there. The one that resonates the most with me is uh, there's one from Intercom that they published on their blog a couple of years ago that's good for kind of establishing like a foundational framework for how PMs should progress in their career. Um, I think soliciting feedbacks and uh, and practicing from practicing your messaging with your peers is probably one of the most important ways because I fundamentally think coaching is more about practice than um, book learning all the time. And in a lot of coaching situations, you've never seen it before. It's, it's the first time you'll run into it. And uh, so the best way then to do that, take that is actually practice with a peer or a friend or somebody that's, that's helpful to you that has some coaching experience. Uh, you know, we're a network of professionals as PMs that are all geared towards giving and receiving feedback. So I think it's pretty, easy for you just to go out and ask someone for some help and uh, you'll often get the right kind of feedback. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being on the show and talking about how to coach product managers. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Cyrus, and, uh, and really appreciate the time on the show. That's it for this week's episode of PM Hub Podcast, guys. If you enjoyed this episode and the show overall, feel free to share on your social media. Leave a five-star review so we can reach more audience. And if you have any suggestions, definitely reach out to me. You can email me at cyrus at productmanagerhub.org. Or you can find me on social media, LinkedIn, all, all over the place. Now, you can get all the tips, action items, and, and it's kind of like the notes for, for this show for free at this bit.ly link that I'm going to give you. It's bit.ly forward slash pmhub19. 
Also, make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. I'm Sayer Slayman, and until next show, stay safe and healthy.